Section 10 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 5 Ceremonies and Festivals. Part 2. I never but once saw the whole neighbourhood assembled when the only son of the Baron de L. married. The Baron and his wife were very good specimens of provincial noblesse. He was a tall, heavily built man, square-shouldered, with the weather-beaten complexion of a man who spent all his days riding about his fields and woods, a pleasant, jovial manner, quite the type of the country gentleman. They lived in a charming old Louis the Fourteenth chateau, almost in the forest of Villers Cotteret their park touching the line of wood. They went rarely to Paris, lived almost all the year in the country and were devoted to their place. One just saw the pointed red roof of the chateau in the trees as one passed on the road. It stood high, a very steep road leading up to it. At the foot of the hill were market gardens which made a very curious effect from a distance. The long rows of glass cloche making huge white spots the vegetables always looked very tempting as we passed in the early summer. They were all premier, the gardens lying in full sun, and were sent off to the Paris market. Halfway up the slope was a pretty little church, almost hidden in the trees, and a tiny village struggled up the hill and along the road. The bride, dressed in white, a slight girlish figure, was standing near her mother-in-law, and had a pretty smile of welcome for all the guests. It was rather an ordeal for her, as she was a stranger in the country. She came from the south of France, and everyone was looking at the newcomer. It was in the first year of my marriage, my first appearance in the country, and I was rather puzzled about my dress for the occasion. We were asked to dinner at seven o'clock. My first idea was to wear full dress, light blue satin and diamonds, but a niece of Madame A's, who was staying with us, and who had been to some entertainments in that part of the country, advised me strongly to dress more simply. They would not understand that sort of toilette, and I would be overdressed and probably uncomfortable. So I compromised with a high white dress, no diamonds, and one string of pearls. We had a short hour's drive. It was a clear, cold night, and we saw the chateau from a great distance. It was brilliantly lighted. The lights, twinkling through the trees, looked like huge fireflies. As we drove into the rather small courtyard, there was quite a stir of carriages arriving and backing out. The hall doors were wide open, a flood of light streaming out over the steps, Baron de L and his son at the door. There was a hum of voices in the drawing-room, and there seemed to be a great many people. The rooms were handsome. Plenty of light. The old tapestry furniture looked very well, standing straight and stiff against the wall, and the number of people took away the bare, unused look they generally had. All the chateaus of the neighbourhood were represented. The Comte de Lubossac and his sister had come over from their fine place, Mocro. He was a very handsome young man, a great hunter and master of hands of the stag-hunting, in the forest of villers Cotteret, his sister, Mademoiselle de Lubessac, most attractive, 
with the face of a saint. She was very simply dressed in a high black dress. She lived almost the life of a sister of charity, going about all day among the sick and poor, but she had promised her father, who was a great invalid, almost crippled with gout, to remain with him as long as he lived. It was only after his death that she took the vows and entered one of the strictest orders, Carmelites, in France. There were also the Chatelaines of Thury-en-Valois, a fine chateau and estate, not very far from us in the other direction. They had splendid gardens, and their fruit and vegetables were famous all over the country. Madame de Thury was a compatriot, the daughter of an American general, the young Comte de Melun, from Brumettes, very delicate-looking, with refined student's face. His father was a great friend of the Maréchal MacMahon, and one of the leaders of the Catholic clerical party, and the young man was very religious. Their woods touched ours, and once or twice when we were riding late, we saw him kneeling at a little old shrine, the White Lady, which was almost hidden under the big trees, so little left that the ordinary passer-by would have seen nothing. There were also the owners of the colonels, rather an ugly square house, standing low, surrounded by a marsh, but a good property, and three or four men I did not know, the bride's brother and one or two of her relations. There was hardly time to introduce everyone, as dinner was announced almost immediately. We were a large party, about twenty. All the women, except the bride and me, were dressed in black, high or a very little open, no lace, no jewels. Henriette was right. I would have looked absurd if I had worn a low dress. The dinner was very good, very abundant and very long. The men said the wines were excellent. The talk was animated enough. It was principally the men who talked. I don't think the women said much. I listened only, as I was too new in the country to be at all up in local topics. After coffee the men went off to smoke, and we women remained alone for some time. I wasn't sorry, as one had so few opportunities of seeing the neighbours, particularly the women, who rarely went out of their own places. One met the men hunting, or in the train, or at the notaries. The notary is the most important person in all small country towns in France. Everybody consults him, from the big landowner, when he has discussions with his neighbour over right of way, to the peasant, who buys a few metres of land, as soon as he has any surplus funds. We were constantly having rows with one of our neighbours over a little strip of wood that ran up into ours. Whenever he was angry with us, which happened quite often, we never knew why, he had a deep, ugly ditch made just across the road, which we always took when we were riding around the property. The woods were so thick and low, with plenty of thorns, that we could not get along by keeping on one side and were obliged to go back and make quite a long detour. The notary did his best to buy it for us, but the man would never sell. Rather enjoyed, I think, having the power to annoy us. Madame de Thury and I fraternised a little, and I should have liked to see more of her, but soon after that evening they had great trouble. They had a great deal of illness and lost a son. I never saw Thury till after both of them were dead. The chateau had been sold, most of the furniture taken away, 
and the whole place had a deserted, neglected look that made one feel quite miserable. The big drawing-room was piled up with straw. Over the doors were still two charming dessous de port, the colours quite fresh, not at all faded. Chickens were walking about in another room, and upstairs in a pretty corner room, with a lovely view over woods and park, was a collection of photographs, engravings, one the mother of the late owner, a piece of unfinished tapestry, samplers, china vases, books, papers, two or three knots of faded ribbon, all tossed in a corner like a heap of rubbish. The things had evidently been forgotten in the big move, but it looked melancholy. The chateau must have been charming when it was furnished and lived in. Quantities of rooms, a long gallery with small rooms on one side, the garçonniere or bachelor's quarters, led directly into the church, where many fairies are sleeping their last sleep. The park was beautiful, and there was capital shooting. W. had often shot there in the old days, when their shooting parties were famous. We ended our evening with music, the bride playing extremely well. Madame de Thury also sang very well. She had learnt in Italy, and sang in quite bravura style. The evening didn't last very long, after the men came in. Everybody was anxious to get the long, cold drive over. I enjoyed myself very much. It was my first experience of a French country entertainment, and it was very different from what I had expected. Not at all stiff, and a most cordial welcome. I thought, rather naively perhaps, that it was the beginning of many entertainments of the same kind, but I never dined out again in the country. It is only fair to say that we never asked anyone to dine either. It was not the habit of the house, and I naturally fell into their ways. Luncheon was what people liked best, so as not to be too late on the road, or to cross the forest after nightfall, when the darkness was sometimes impenetrable. Some of the chatelaines received once a week. On that day a handsome and plentiful luncheon was provided, and people came from the neighbouring chateaux, and even from Paris, when the distance was not too great, and the train suited. We had quite an excitement one day at the chateau. Francis was riding with the groom one morning, about the end of August, and had hardly got out of the gates, when he came racing back to tell us that the manoeuvres were to take place very near us, small detachments of troops already arriving, and the village people had told him that quite a large contingent, men and horses, were to be quartered at the chateau. W. sent him straight off again to the mayor of Marol, our big village, to know if his information was correct and how many people we must provide for. Francis met the mayor on the road on his way to us, very busy and bustled with so many people to settle. He was billeting men and horses in the little hamlet and at all the farms. He told us we were to have thirty men and horses, six officers, twenty-four men, and they would arrive at sundown in time to cook their dinner. Hubert, the coachman, was quite bewildered at first how to provide for so many, but fortunately the stables and dependencies were very large, and it was quite extraordinary how quickly and comfortably everything was arranged. Men from the farm brought in large bundles of straw, and everybody lent a willing hand. 
They love soldiers in France and are always proud and happy to receive them. About 4.30, when we had just moved out to the tennis ground for tea, we saw an officer with his orderly riding up the avenue. He dismounted as soon as he caught sight of us sitting on the lawn and introduced himself, said he was sent on ahead to see about lodging for himself, his brother officers and his men. They were part of a cavalry regiment, chasseurs, stationed at a small town in the neighbourhood. He asked W if he might see the soldiers' quarters, said they brought their own food and would cook their dinner, asked if there was a room in the chateau where the sous-officiers could dine, as they never eat with their men. He with W and Francis went off to inspect the arrangements and give the necessary orders. We had already seen the officers' rooms, but hadn't thought of a separate dining-room for the sous-officiers. However, it was easily managed. We gave them the children's dining-room, in the wing near the kitchen and the offices. When W came in, he told us the whole party had arrived, and we started after the Camon to see what was going on. The stable-yard, which is very large, with some fine trees and outbuildings all around it, was filled with blue-coated soldiers and small chestnut horses. Some were drinking out of the troughs. Some, tied to the trees, and rings on the wall, were being rubbed down. The men walking about with the officers' valise and their own kits, undoing blankets, tin plates and cups. And I should think every man and boy on our place and in the small hamlet standing about anxious to do something. Our little fox terriers were mad with excitement. Even the donkey seemed to feel there was something different in the air. He brayed noisily and gave little vicious kicks occasionally when some of the horses passed too near. A group of officers were standing at the door of the stables talking to Hubert, who had managed very well, putting all the officers' horses into a second stable, which was always kept for guests, and the others in the various sheds and outhouses, all under cover. W introduced the officers, a nice-looking lot, chasseurs, in the light blue uniform which is so smart. He had asked permission for the men to dine at the chateau. They had their own meat and bread, but our chef was most anxious to cook it for them, and make them another substantial dish, so it was agreed that they should dine at six in the servants' hall. They all marched up in procession, headed by their sergeants. The blue tunics and red trousers looked very pretty as they came along the big avenue. The commandant asked W if he would go and say a few words to them when they were having their coffee. They were very quiet. One hardly heard anything, though all the windows were open. W said it was quite interesting to see all the young faces smiling and listening hard when he made his little speech. He asked them if they had had a good dinner. He hoped his man knew how to cook for soldiers. They all nodded and smiled at the chef, who was standing at the door looking very hot and very pleased. He had produced a sweet dish, I don't know what with, as he didn't habitually have thirty extra people to dinner, but I have always seen that when people want to do anything, it is usually accomplished. Our dinner was very pleasant. We were ten at table, W and I, Henrietta and Anise. The men talked easily, some of them Parisians, knowing everyone. They knew that W had remained at the chateau all during the Franco-German war 
and were much interested in all he told them of the Prussian occupation. Only one of them had, as a very young fellow, served in 1870. All the rest were too young, and like all young soldiers who have not been through a war and seen the horrors of it, were rather anxious to have their chance and not spend all the best years of their lives in a small dull garrison town. We discussed the plans for the next day. They were going to have a sham fight over all the big fields in our neighbourhood and advise us to come and see it. They said the best time would be about ten in the morning, when they were to monte a lasso of a large farm with moat and drawbridge near Damery. They were to make a very early start, four o'clock, and they said they would be very pleased to have some hot coffee before mounting, if it could be had at that unearthly hour. They were very anxious about choosing a horse out of their squadron for the general, who was an infantry man, very stout, very rheumatic, and a very bad rider. The horse must be sure-footed, an easy mouth, easy canter, no tricks, accustomed to drum and bugle, to say nothing of the musket shots, etc. Henrietta and I rather amused ourselves after dinner, teaching the commandant and another officer, Halma, which was just then at the height of its popularity. We had brought it over from London, where the whole society was mad over it. We were staying in a country house one year, when there were seven tables of Halma in the long gallery. The gentlemen rather disdained it at first, but as the game went on, and they began to realise that there really was some science in it, and that our men were placing themselves very comfortably in their little squares, while theirs were wandering aimlessly about the centre of the board. They warmed to their task, and were quite vexed when they were badly beaten. They wanted their revanche. W came in and gave a word of advice every now and then. The others finished their billiards, came to look on, each one suggesting a different move, which, of course, only complicated matters, and they lost again. Then some of the others tried with the same result. I think we played five or six games. They were so much pleased with the game that they asked us to write down the name and where to get it, and one of them afterward told my nephew, also a cavalry officer, that they introduced it at their mess and played every night instead of cards or dominoes. It was really funny to see how annoyed they were when their scientific combinations failed. The next morning was beautiful, a splendid August day, not too hot, little white clouds scurrying over the bright blue sky, veiling the sun. We started about nine, W. Francis and I riding, the others driving. There are a good many people about in the fields and crossroads, a few farmers riding, and everybody wildly interested, telling us which way to go. Janet, my American niece, who was staying in the country in France for the first time, was horrified to see women working in the fields, couldn't believe that her uncle would allow it on his farm, and made quite an appeal to him, when we all got home, to put an end to such cruel proceedings. It seems women never work in the fields in America, except negresses, on some of the southern plantations. I have been so long away that I had forgotten that they didn't, and I remember quite well my horror the first time we were in Germany when we saw a woman and an ox harnessed together. We separated from the carriage at the top of the hill, 
as we could get a nice canter and shorter road across the fields. We soon came in sight of the farmhouse, standing low, with moat and drawbridge, in rather an isolated position in the middle of the fields, very few trees around it. There was no longer any water in the moat. It was merely a deep, wide, damp ditch, with long, straggling vines and weeds filling it up, and a slippery, steep bank. Soldiers were advancing in all directions, the small infantrymen moving along with a light, quick step. The cavalry, apparently, had been on the ground some time, as they were all dismounted and their horses picketed. We didn't go very near, as W wasn't quite sure how the horses would stand the bugle and firing. They were already pulling hard and getting a little nervous. It was pretty to see the soldiers all mount when the bugle ran out, and in a moment the whole body was in motion. The rush of the soldiers over the wide plains and the drawbridge looked irresistible. The men swarmed down the bank and over the ditch. One saw a confused mass of red trousers and kepi. The cavalry came along very leisurely, guarding the rear. I looked for the general. He was standing with some of his staff on a small hill directing operations. He did look stout and very red and warm. However, it was the last day, so his troubles were over for the present. One of the officers saw us and came up to pay his respects, said they wouldn't be back at the chateau until about five. Perhaps the ladies would come to the stable yard and see the passage. It was quite interesting. All the horses ranged in a semicircle, men scrubbing and combing hard. The sous-officiers superintending, the officers standing about smoking and seeing that everything was being packed and ready for an early start the next morning. I was astonished to see how small the horses were. My English horse, also a chestnut, was not particularly big, but he looked a giant among the others. They admired him very much, and one of the officers asked Hubert if he thought I would like to sell him. Our dinner was again very pleasant, and we had more halma in the evening. W played once or twice, and as he was a fairly good player, the adversaries had no chance. We broke up early, as they were to start again at some unearthly hour the next morning. It seems they were very lively in the stables after dinner. We heard sounds of merriment, singing and choruses, and I fancy dancing. However, it made quite a pleasant break in our summer, and the big place seemed quieter and lonelier than ever after such unusual animation. W said the war talk was much keener than the first day, when they were smoking in the gallery. All the young ones, so eager to earn their stripes, and so confident that the army had profited by its bitter experience during the Franco-German War. Election day is always a very important day in France. The village farmers and labourers put on their best clothes, usually a black coat, silk hat and white shirt, and take themselves solemnly to the Marie, where the voting takes place. For weeks beforehand, agents and lecturers come from Paris and bamboozle the simple village people with newspapers, money and wonderful promises. It is astounding how easily the French peasant believes all that the political agents tell him and all that he reads in the cheap papers, for as a rule, taken en masse, they are very intelligent and at the same time suspicious, méfiant. 
manage their own little affairs very well and are rarely taken in. But there is something in the popular orator that carries them away and they really believe that a golden epoch is coming, when there will be no rich and no poor and plenty and equality for all. They don't care a bit what form of government they live under as long as their crops are good and they can have regular work and no war. The political agitators understand that very well. They never lay any stress on royalist or bonapartist or even a military candidate. The people's candidate is always their cry, one of themselves who understands them and will give them all they want. They are disappointed always. The ministers and deputies change, but their lives don't and run on in the same groove. But they are just as sanguine each time there is an election. Convinced that, at last, the promised days of high pay and little work are coming. I tried to reason with a nice, respectable man one day, the village mason, one of the most fiery orators at the café, over his dominoes, but in everyday life a sober, hard-working man with a sickly wife and several children, who are all clothed and generally looked after by us. His favourite theme was the owners of chateaus and big houses who lived in luxury and thought nothing of the poor. I said to him, Why do you listen to all those foolish speeches that are made in the cafes? You know it isn't true, half they say. Whenever you come and ask for anything for your wife and your children, it is always given to you. You know quite well, whenever anyone is ill in the village, they always come here for wine, old linen or bouillon. Oh, we, oui, madame, is good, but madame does not understand. But it is you, mon ami, who don't understand. Once the election is over, and they have got your vote, no one will think about you any more. Oh, yes, madame, everything will be divided. There will be no more big houses. Everyone will have a garden and rabbits, not all for the rich. It is not right. Madame knows it is not right. It was quite useless talking to him. Women in France never take the active part in elections they do in England. It interested me so much when we were living in England to see many of the great ladies doing all they could for their candidate, driving all over the country with his colours on servants and horses, a big bill in the windows of their carriages with Vote for A on it. In the drawing-room windows of a well-known society leader, there were two large bills. Vote for A. I asked W one day, when he was standing for the Senate, if he would like me to drive all about the country with his colours and vote for Waddington on placards in the windows of the carriage. But he utterly declined any such intervention on my part, thought a few breakfasts at the chateau and a quiet talk over coffee and cigars would be more to the purpose. He never took much trouble over his elections the last years, Meetings and speeches in all the small towns and Banquet de Pompierre were things of the past. He said the people had seen him à l'ouvre and that no speeches would change a vote. The only year that we gave ourselves any trouble was during the Boulanger craze. W went about a great deal and I often went with him. The weather was beautiful and we rode all over the country. We were astounded at the progress Boulangerism had made in our quiet villages. Wherever we went, in the cafés, in the auberge, in the grocer's shop, there was a picture of Boulanger prancing on his black horse. 
we stopped one day at a miserable little cottage not far from our place where a workman had had a horrible accident been caught in the machine of one of the sugar mills almost all the men in the village worked in w's woods and had always voted as one man for him or his friends when we went into the poor little dark room with literally nothing in it but the bed a table and some chairs the first thing we saw was the well-known picture of boulanger on the mantelpiece we talked a little to the man and his wife the poor fellow was suffering terribly and then w said i am surprised to see that picture do you know general boulanger have you ever seen him the man's face quite lighted up as he looked at the picture and answered non monsieur je ne l'ai jamais vu mais il est grand celui-là and that was all that he could ever get out of him il est grand i don't know exactly what he meant i don't think he knew himself but he was quite excited when he spoke of the hero boulanger's campaign was very cleverly done his agents distributed papers pictures and money most liberally one of the curious features of that episode was the quantity of money that was given gold flowed freely into the general's coffers from all parts of france great names grand dames giving largely and openly to the cause a great deal sent anonymously and a great deal in very small sums boulanger lived in our street and i was astounded one day when i met him i did not know him riding always with a man on each side of him almost every one took off his hat to him and there were a few faint cries of vive boulanger proceeding chiefly from the painters and masons who were building a house just opposite ours certainly for a short time he had the game in his hands could i think have carried the country but when the moment to act arrived his nerve failed him it is difficult to understand what made his great popularity politics had not been satisfactory the president greve had resigned under unfortunate circumstances there had been a succession of weak and inefficient cabinets and there was a vague feeling of unrest in the country boulanger seemed to promise something better he was a soldier which always appeals to the french young and dashing surrounded by clever unscrupulous people of all classes almost all the young element of both parties radical and conservative few of the moderate republicans had rallied to his programme revision et dissolution his friends were much too intelligent to let him issue a long manifesto circular promising all sorts of reforms and changes he never could have carried out while his two catchwords gave hopes to everybody a revision of the constitution might mean a monarchy empire or military dictatorship each party thought its turn had come and dissolving the chambers would of course bring a new one where again each party hoped to have the majority the paris election by an overwhelming majority was his great triumph the government did all they could to prevent it but nothing could stop the wave of popularity the night of the election boulanger and his etat major were assembled at durand's the well-known cafe on the corner of the boulevard and the rue royale as the evening went on and the returns came in far exceeding anything they had hoped for 
there was but one thought in everyone's mind ah lise hundreds of people were waiting outside and he would have been carried in triumph to the palace he could not make up his mind at midnight he still wavered his great friend the poet derelet then took out his watch waited in perfect silence until it was five minutes past twelve and then said general depuis cinq minutes votre aureole baisse boulanger went out by a side door leaving his friends disappointed and furious to announce to the waiting crowd that the general had gone home he could have certainly got to the elysee that night how long he would have stayed and whom he would have put there we shall never know end of section ten recording by florence